we will continue our study through the book of Hebrews. And we're in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. 1 through 11. I've titled this message, Cultural Christianity Will Not Save. And uh, we'll get into why in just a moment. Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11 this morning. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to just as, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundations of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David to long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There is a song out there uh, by DeGarmo and Key called Casual Christian. Maybe you've heard it. The chorus goes like this. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. I don't want to live, I don't want to live a lukewarm life. But I want to light up the night with an everlasting light. I don't want to live the casual Christian life. And though I do believe there are indeed times when we struggle with being a casual Christian, I believe the pressing need of our day today is to not be a cultural Christian. The backdrop for Hebrews chapter 4 continues to be the Exodus wandering of Israel in the wilderness. They failed, they succumbed to the sin of unbelief, they complained and disobeyed God, and as a result, they did not enter into the promised land. The author of Hebrews is emphasizing for us and all the readers that we must realize we are in a similar situation as the Israelites. Our trials are like their trials. And how we respond reveals what is in our heart. But it goes beyond that because as we have looked at for a few weeks now, it's easy to be a part of American Christianity and yet not know Christ. In other words, it's easy to be a cultural Christian and that will not save you. 
One of the scariest passages in all of Scripture is found in Matthew 7, 21-23, which I read last week. I'll read again this morning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. First of all, this warning is from Jesus. And the warning is that it is entirely possible for people to claim to follow Jesus, claim to serve Jesus, and even demonstrate our service in remarkable ways such as casting out demons, prophesying, and performing miracles, and yet not get into heaven. Now here's the thing, this warning that Jesus is given is not speaking to a bunch of pagans who are out living some sort of crazy sinful lifestyle. These were people that have spent their entire lives serving Jesus, or at least they thought they were serving Him. They even said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, and they were shocked at being shut out of heaven. They thought for sure that they were going to get in, but they didn't get in. Listen, these words strike fear into my heart. And if they don't yours, they should. The words of Jesus and the words we find in our passage of Scripture this morning make it clear that cultural Christianity does not save you. You say, well, who's a cultural Christian? A cultural Christian goes to church. They say they believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They may even serve in the church, and yet they can hear the words from the mouth of Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So this morning I have two main goals for us from this passage of Scripture. First, how do we keep from being a cultural Christian? Or how will we recognize that? And secondly, how do I know I'm truly saved? And I hope to answer those questions this morning with you. Now I have a confession to make this morning. When I preach over a passage of Scripture... Um, in, in particular in Hebrews now, I typically will read about 12 commentaries over that passage of Scripture, as well as several sermons from people that I respect over that same passage of Scripture. That's just what I do, and I, I read through the, through the passage multiple times, and I circle stuff, and I underline stuff, and I pull words out, and I look at stuff in the Greek and all that that I'm supposed to do, and I study and glean truth from that, and, and I will read through it, and and I have to confess, nearly everything I've read over this passage of Scripture dealt with the idea of rest, or how we can experience God's rest in some way, shape, or form. There were a few that I found where this was not their focus, and it got, to, got me to really thinking about this passage of Scripture. And I noticed it starts with the word 
therefore, which points us back to chapter 3, which we must, uh, which we just completed talking about last week, about a persevering faith. And then we are commanded to, to fear something in this passage of Scripture. And then we see good news came, but some did not appropriate their faith. And then he jumps into how the Israelites did not enter rest because they were disobedient. And all this led me to realize that the thrust here in this passage of Scripture is that cultural Christianity does not save you. It falls short. And I believe the author is continuing his theme of warning those people that were in the church, that were professing to be Christians, to make sure that the faith that they professed is a faith that they possess. And so... What I'm going to do with you this morning is I'm first going to explain the text and then I'm going to apply the text. So we're first going to explain the text and then we're going to apply the text. By the way, did you notice I changed the notes again? Okay, so we're going to explain the text. We're going to apply the text. Now you have all the notes already filled in. So if you want to take other notes, you're more than welcome to explain the text, apply the text. So the first thing I want to see in explaining the text is this is about the experience of salvation. This is about the experience of salvation. The first thing I want us to understand about this is it's speaking to the experience of salvation. The passage starts off with this word, therefore, which, as I said, causes us to look back at chapter 3. In chapter 3, we talked about a persevering faith and the warning that was laid out against an evil and an unbelieving heart. The audience of Hebrews uh, was these Jewish believers. They were Jews that had come to faith in Jesus Christ. But they were tempted because they were in, they were facing persecution. And so the temptation was for them to return to Judaism. And in chapter 3, verse 6, the author tells them to hold fast. And in verse 14, he tells them to hold firm. And, and uh, then the author cites from Psalm 95 and recounts the Israelites' wilderness wandering that provoked God and how they were excluded from entering the promised land. Now remember, all of these Israelites had, had crossed the Red Sea. And they all had saw that miracle of God. And all of these Israelites experienced the Passover by sprinkling the blood of the Lamb on their doorpost. But they still ended up not believing. Some people try to say about about those Israelites, they try to say, well, they were carnal Christians. And I've said before that I don't believe there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. I believe it is a perversion of salvation even say that there is such a thing. For us to believe that those who did not enter God's rest are carnal Christians is a gross misapplication of the text. They weren't carnal Christians. It says that they did not believe. They weren't Christians at all. And those who rebelled in the wilderness incurred the wrath of God. They were cultural Christians. Look at them. They were an active part of the people of God. In this case, Israel, yet they did not trust in the Lord. In fact, over and over again, they are described as having hard hearts. Chapter 3, verse 8, 
verse 13, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 7. They're described as having hard hearts. They are described as being under God's wrath. Chapter 3, verse 10, verse 11, verse 17, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 3. And finally, they are described as having the sin of unbelief and disobedience. Chapter 3, verse 12, verse 17, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 2, verse 6, and verse 11. They were not Christian at all. They weren't carnal. They weren't even believing. The author of Hebrews is not talking about some someone going deeper in their Christian life, but he's speaking about a response to the gospel. He's speaking about the experience of salvation. Look at verse 2. It says in verse 2, For the good news came. Look at verse 6. Those who formerly received the good news. What's the good news? It's the gospel. People weren't saved differently in the Old Testament than they are saved today. They're saved by the same way, by grace through faith. However, the good news did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith. The implication is clear. It's not the hearing of the gospel that brings salvation, but it's the appropriation of faith. So when he says, fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, meaning God's rest, when he says, be afraid just in case you, you haven't reached God's rest, what is it that we are to be afraid of? What should we fear? We should fear unbelief. They did not enter God's rest because of unbelief. Therefore, we fear unbelief because unbelief keeps us from entering God's rest. We fear unbelief because it will keep us from salvation. Either way, we know God through faith or we are the object of God's wrath through unbelief and disobedience. If we fail to believe God's promise, then those promises become judgments on us. The author's concern of the church was not that some of them may be carnal Christian. His concern is that some in the Hebrew church were not Christian at all. Just like all those in Israel that died in the wilderness. They are part of what appears to be a Christian crowd, but are not true believers. His concern is for their salvation. Secondly, in explaining the text, we must understand that God offers salvation using the image of rest. So we have this image of rest throughout this, this passage of Scripture. And he's using the image of rest for salvation. In verses 3 to, through 10, we have uh, support for the point that we need to fear unbelief. This is done by showing us from the Old Testament that there is a rest that we can enter into. That is, God has a plan for His people to join Him in heaven where there are no burdens and there are no worries. And the author does this through four periods of time. He gives us four periods of time. So let's look at those real quick. First, he talks about rest at creation. Rest at creation. Verses 3 and 4. We have recorded for us the picture of rest. We enjoy in God, and this picture comes from the creation account. He starts off by writing, For we who believed entered that rest, and then he immediately moves into citing Psalm 95, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he adds to it, Although his work was finished from the foundation 
of the world. And then he cites from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, and how God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The idea is that rest of God has been available from the time that God ended his creative work. So what he is saying is that the Jewish Sabbath that they practiced had its roots in the creation narrative. The reason a Sabbath was observed comes from creation, comes from looking at God and seeing that God rested. And this is a picture of the rest that God has for His people and that they will enjoy through salvation. This was a day, the day of rest was a day to cease from normal rigors of labor and to be refreshed through time with God. This was a weekly opportunity for everyone to stop and reflect on God and all that God has done for them. The Sabbath from the beginning was a time for one to rest and reflect on God. And so he speaks of rest at creation and and traces it all the way back there and, and shows us that, hey, this has been available since creation. And then he moves to promised land rest. Promised land rest. In the promised land, we see a picture of a rest that is offered to those that place their faith in him. The author in verse 3 repeats the last phrase of Psalm 95:11 when he says, they shall not enter my rest, which is a reference to the generation that perished in the desert. Then in verse 8, the author shows that even those who entered into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua did not experience God's full rest. He uses the fact that David spoke 300 years after Joshua of the need to enter God's rest. The reader at this time would have understood what the author was doing. They they would have known exactly what the author of Hebrews was doing. As Joshua was a type of Jesus. In fact, Joshua is the name Jesus in the Hebrew language, which means Yahweh saves, Yeshua. Joshua leads the people into the promised land, but that was only a picture of what was yet to be God's ultimate plan of salvation provided through Jesus Christ. And then we have the picture of David's rest. So we have creation rest, promised land rest, David's rest. Long after the people enjoyed the rest they found in the promised land. David says that God is still offering the rest of salvation. Those in the wilderness failed to enter the rest. And David wrote, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There is still a chance to respond to God's offer of rest. Pay attention to what what it says. The emphasis uh, in this text is on the word today. Today, there is a present application. Even though in the wilderness, Israel failed to appropriate God's rest, it was once again offered through David. Every generation has the opportunity to respond in faith to God's promise. And so we have creation rest, promised land rest, David's rest, and then finally, God's appeal for us to enter his rest today. God's appeal for us to enter His rest today. And in these verses, the author uses explicitly a unique word which is translated Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. This is bringing attention to the 
spiritual aspect of God's rest. It goes beyond the observance of a Sabbath day as holy. It goes beyond physically entering into the promised land. This is the promise that Jesus made when He said, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden. What's He say? I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you upon you, and learn from Me. I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. The author tells the people that this rest remaining, uh, or th- this rest for the people comes from God. And then he explains that the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work as God also rested. The people of God is a reference to the Old Testament. He talks about the, the people of God and it's reference to Old Testament Israel and all those who are associated with God's church. The point is that there is a rest open to you today. The point is God offers that rest. The door is not shut. The time is not passed. You've not missed out on the opportunity. The time to enter the rest is Now, there is only one door to the rest that he speaks about, and that is the door of faith. Anyone who places their faith in God's promises, bought by the blood of Jesus, and perseveres in that faith, is a part of the people of God. And so I say to you this morning, if you've never put your trust in the promise of God's rest, then do so today. Perhaps you would say, well, how is salvation rest? Well, at the root of the imagery of rest is that we stop trusting in our works to save us and instead we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save us. And that's a rest. Because you're never going to work your way there. This talk about rest is not talking about believers learning to trust in God more through their trials so they can have some sort of inner peace in their life. Though that, though Scripture, I believe, does teach that. But I believe these verses are talking about salvation and using the picture of rest to talk about salvation and using the Israelites wandering in the wilderness so that we would understand what it's like. This is a warning for those that may be associated with the people of God, for those that go to church, those that attend church, those that are even active in their church and they know all about the things of God and they're associated with the people of God, but they're missing salvation. It's a warning that cultural Christianity, just going to church on Sunday morning, will not save you. The only thing that will save you is a response in faith to the message of Jesus Christ. So in explaining the text, it's about the experience of salvation. God is using the image of rest to offer salvation. Now that we've explained the text, I want to apply the text. I want to apply the text. Third point. Cultural Christianity will not save you. Faith in Christ will. Cultural Christianity will not save you. Faith in Christ 
will. I want you to stop and think with me for just a moment about the Jews in the wilderness. They had a general belief in God. They knew the the story of creation and they believed it. They believed the covenant promise of Abraham. They believed God enough that they applied the blood of the Lamb to their doorposts and followed Moses to the Red Sea and through the Red Sea. They believed in a general sense. It says that they, they had heard the good news, but it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They did not appropriate their faith. They did not personally believe. In fact, when they heard about the giants in the land of Canaan, what did they do? They complained. And they said, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt or to have died in the wilderness than to be killed by these Canaanites. And so God granted their wish. They all died in the wilderness. Listen, there are people that are trusting in their salvation because they grew up in church. They know about God and they know about Jesus. They've heard the gospel message all their life and intellectually they believe in Jesus. Intellectually they believe that He died for their sins. However, intellectual assent to Jesus is not enough to save you. Saving faith is a personal faith. It is personally trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ as the only payment for your sin. Saving faith believes in the promises of God and the grace of God. It believes that God's grace covers our sin because of the blood of His Son and the righteousness of His Son is imputed on you. Going through the motions of being a cultural Christian will not save you. Your hope in heaven It's not based on what your mom or your dad believed or what their faith was or on the fact that you hang out with some Christians in a church building. You must see that you are exceedingly sinful and in need of a Savior and personally come to the cross in faith and receive the mercy of God. Fourthly, Cultural Christianity leads to a false peace. Cultural Christianity leads to a false peace. I'm afraid that there's many that sit in church on Sunday morning all around the world who are just like those who Jesus referred to who will say, Lord, Lord. But they're not going to make it to heaven. There are false teachers running rampant in the church, proclaiming secular humanism. And many in the church are not even able to recognize the difference between humanism and Scripture. You know, I was recently watching a TV show, which will remain nameless. If you know this quote, you'll know what I was watching. And you can ask me afterwards if you really want to know. But I'm, I'm going to keep it nameless In the show, one of the characters made this statement. You can't let the wolves run around with the sheep. And when that statement was made immediately in my head, I thought, that's what we see in church today. Wolves running around with the sheep. People today are encouraged, just invite Jesus into your hearts. 
And then afterwards, they are told that they have eternal life and that they will never lose that eternal life. And often they are not told that they are sinners or need to repent. They are not told that God must change their heart. And in fact, we don't even have to look far to see that the most evangelicals think and live just like the rest of the population. And there is no difference in their life. Why is that? Because there has been no heart change because too many of them simply are cultural Christians. They know the motions. They know what to do. They know when to stand, when to sit, when to say things, when not to say things. They jump through all the hoops and they say and do all the right things and they're lulled to sleep by a false sense of peace because someone has misinformed them. Just because someone feels like they have peace does not mean they are saved. You know, our feelings can play tricks on us. And unless their basis is found in an enlightened grasp of God's truth, then they are not spiritual. It does not matter how powerful your feeling seems to be. Unless it's backed up by the Word of God, it is not from God. True, fifthly, true saving faith is a matter of the heart, not outward religion. True saving faith is a matter of the heart, not outward religion. Look at verse 7. For the third time, we see a warning. Do not harden your heart. We have repeatedly said that God looks on the heart, that He does not look at the outward performance. He doesn't look at how many religious duties you perform. You know, it's so easy to trick other people. It's so easy to pretend to be someone you're not. It's easy to pretend to be a Christian and follow all the outward signs of religion, but God sees directly into the heart. When we are saved, God changes our heart. He replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh that is tender towards Him. If you truly know Christ as your Savior, you know your heart's different than it was before you knew Him. It's not that you never sin because we still do sin. However, your attitude towards sin is different. And if it is not radically different, there's a problem. Before you were saved, you loved sin. Now you hate the sin. Before you were saved, you could care less about the things of God. Now you love God and His Word. The desire of your life is to know Him more and more and to love Him more. If your life consists of living in sin and not caring about the things of God and you have no desire to know Him, then to be honest, you better question whether you know Christ as your Savior or not. Because God changes your heart. That's not just some outward signs of religion, but your heart is changed. Sixthly, true saving faith is obedient. True saving faith is obedient. Last week we talked about how the author of Hebrews uses faith and obedience interchangeably. That's not to say that we're saved by works, but it is to say that true saving faith always results in obedience to God. That does not mean that we'll be perfect. It doesn't mean that we'll be sinless. No one lives a perfect life. But all true believers strive against sin. Instead of being enslaved to sin, a believer instead is a slave of righteousness out of obedience to Christ. Anyone who is not growing in obedience to God's Word 
should question whether they have genuine saving faith or whether they're just a cultural Christian. Seventhly, true saving faith trusts completely in the work of Jesus Christ. True saving faith trusts completely in the work of Jesus Christ. If we depend on ourselves in anything concerning salvation, it will not get us into heaven. It is even possible to wrongly depend on your faith, thinking your faith is what gets you to heaven. Our faith does not get us into heaven. If we think we have made Uh, If we think that we get into heaven by our faith, we have made faith a work. And we've made faith what we trust in for eternal life. It's not your faith that gets you into heaven. We don't trust in our faith. I don't say, well, I'm trusting in my faith to get to heaven. But instead, I trust in Christ to get me to heaven. We are not saved by faith. It's not what the Scripture says. It says we are saved by grace through faith. If salvation is based on my faith, then salvation would be due to something in me. If salvation occurred because I had some faith and my neighbor doesn't have faith, that means that I've earned my salvation and I'm somehow better than my neighbor and therefore God saves me because I have faith. But it's not based upon my faith. It's all God's grace. God saves us by His grace based on the merit of Jesus Christ. Faith simply looks to Christ and relies on Christ alone. So my faith says I look to Christ and I completely rely on Christ. True saving faith trusts completely in the work of Jesus Christ. Eighthly, While true saving faith is a gift, it requires perseverance. While true saving faith is a gift, it requires perseverance. Verse 11 is interesting for us. When it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of of disobedience. It almost seems like a contradiction that we should strive to enter rest. If salvation is entirely a gift from God, why would we strive to enter it? Because there's an act of responsibility on our part. According to verse 10, we rest from our works. And then in verse 11, we must be diligent to enter His rest. Like I said last week, to go to hell is easy. All you have to do is nothing. You can go to hell with no effort at all. Go along with the rest of the world, do your own thing, and you'll get there. It's easy to get there. Going to heaven... Requires work. Not in the idea that your work is going to save you, 
But it does take a persevering faith. We have to work hard. Because Satan is constantly coming at us, trying to cause turmoil in your heart. We labor and we work to see God's rest. We strive for it, just like Jesus said. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Luke 13, 24. We do this so we won't come up short. We, we work hard. We strive. While true saving faith is a gift, it requires perseverance on our part. It's not a, like a once and done deal. We persevere in our faith. Ninthly, and lastly, true saving faith displays confidence in God today and hope in God for the future. The rest that's spoken of in these verses is not just a future hope, but it's a present reality. It's, it's both. The present reality is that we know that we have been justified by our faith. And for that reason, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let me just read from you from the book of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. I, mean, I could preach a whole other sermon over those verses. I won't do that, but I'm just saying I could. But I want us to understand is that true saving faith knows and understands the present reality of entering God's rest today. I mean, how else is it that a Christian can rejoice in suffering. Because we know God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. And that He's never going to put us to shame. Because we have true saving faith. So we have this confidence in God today. But we also have this hope for the future. And that hope is that we will be, be with the Lord forever in glory. Where He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where there will be no more mourning. Where there will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. In heaven we will know the comfort of God. And that is our future hope. It's a present reality and a future hope. It's not either or. It's both, it's a, both and. We experience His rest today. Because we're confident in our salvation. And we will experience His rest in the future when we know the comfort of God in heaven. In conclusion, I know the thoughts that enter our head when a series of sermons like this is preached, you know, talking about persevering faith and all this idea of faith and not being a cultural Christian. And sometimes 
our thoughts go like this. So am I supposed to live my life in constant fear of being lost? I mean, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 says, let us fear. And that doesn't stand, that verse doesn't stand in isolation either. Luke chapter 12 verse 5, Jesus says, fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Or how about the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or how about in Romans chapter 11 verse 20, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. This is God's word. That's not my word. I'm not the one who says that we are to fear, but God's word does say that we are to fear. Here's the question. Are Christians supposed to live their lives in such a way that they're constantly in fear of missing out on heaven? Well, it would not seem so if we were to go back to chapter 2, verse 15, when we read that Christ died in Hebrews 2.15, and we read why He died, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So clearly, Christ died to deliver us from the fear of death and lifelong slavery. Clearly, we are to be fearless. Christ wants people that are willing to go to third world countries without fear, who will speak the truth of the gospel to their neighbors without fear, who will go and proclaim the gospel in areas where others are afraid without fear. How do we do this? How do we live a life without fear? By faith in His promises. So what is it that we are to fear? Unbelief. Faithlessness. What we are to fear is unbelief. We should fear a faithlessness. We should fear having a fickle faith that fails to believe in the promises of God and fails to trust in God. Because when we trust in God and His promises, we can be fearless. When we, when we trust and we know that God has everything under control, you are fearless in the face of anything. You can even stare death in the face and have no fear because you understand that God is in control of all things. This is not that we run around, this is not so that we can run around defeated with a bad feeling in our gut, always afraid to do anything. We only experience the fear of unbelief when we are faced with temptation of failures to trust in God. And then we are afraid. And when we are afraid, uh, what do we do? Well, hopefully, we run to God and confess our fear and confess our unbelief. We don't live our Christian life paralyzed by fear. We live it aware and fearful of the danger of unbelief. We live by faith. Fear only comes where faith starts to weaken. And even then, it only comes around long enough to lead us back into the arms of our Savior and back to a fearless faith. My desire is that this message will have disturbed you. Especially if you're comfortable where you are in your walk with Christ. And if you're struggling 
I pray this message brought you comfort. In other words, if you walked in this morning feeling like you're standing before God is good because you are associated with First Baptist Church or because you serve in some capacity in the church or because of anything that you do, I trust that this message has disturbed you to see that your standing with God is on shaky ground. If you are trusting in yourself, you are in big trouble. If your hope of heaven is based on outward religion and cultural Christianity and the fact that people see you pray or you do the right things or you give money and the offering plate or you know how to jump through all the hoops of religion, then you have a false hope. And you'll find no peace coming from my lips. Because the only one that can give us true hope is Jesus Christ. However, if you came in this morning feeling dejected because perhaps today your heartaches of your propensity to sin, perhaps today you come in and you know if my salvation depends on my performance, I'm hopeless. You realize you never make it. And I hope this morning you are comforted by this message. I hope you find comfort in knowing that you cannot enter heaven by your own merit, but only through faith in Christ alone. I trust that you will fear the unbelief of cultural Christianity that simply goes through the motions. And I pray that you will trust in the Savior who gives rest to His people. So I ask you this morning, do you have a true saving faith? Has this message reaffirm that for you as you examine your salvation this morning in accordance to what has been proclaimed in this message. What do you feel? Comfort? Or have you been squirming in your pew this whole time? Are you saved? You're just going through the motions. Are you a cultural Christian? You just know what to do. And that's what you've been doing your whole life. I can't answer that for you. But I trust you'll examine this passage in Hebrews. Maybe you'll go back over this message later on. And you'll ask these questions of your heart. You'll ask these questions as we applied the text. And you'll say, do I have true saving faith? Or do I not? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. We'll be standing down front. Maybe this morning, for the first time, a light bulb went on in your head. And maybe you've been playing the game your whole life. Maybe you're, I don't know, maybe you've grown up in church. But you are a cultural Christian. You know it. Maybe this morning you felt the conviction. I'll be standing down there. I'd love to pray with you this morning. Maybe this morning you, you, you have to give your life to Christ. I'd be glad to help you walk you through that this morning. Maybe just as we walk through this, there's some areas that you just you, you really need to work on. Maybe as you've, you've thought this through, you, you say, Pastor, I, I got some areas that I, that I just... I'm not really trusting in the Lord in in this area, and, and I really need some help. 
I'd be glad to pray with you. Maybe you say, I'm a carnal Christian. Well, I'd be glad to pray for your salvation because there is no such thing. I'll be standing down front. We're going to sing a song. And if you feel the need to respond this morning, I'd be glad to, to meet you down there. Let's close a prayer.